Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me back by popular demand, it was uh, the, the, the preseason breakout star, Micah Blake McCurdy. Micah, what's going on, man? Not much. I'm feeling good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm uh, I'm excited to have you back on. We uh, we had last recorded right before the season started, and now uh, a month has passed. We've seen each team play roughly 20% of their schedule so far, give or take. Um, and I, we, we were talking off air before we started recording uh, the other day about how I think people would gen- generally be surprised about sort of the the correlation or, or, or how well tied um, a team's possession uh, metrics are this early in the season. And then when you reach this point, how well they sort of predict how well the team's going to do uh, in the rest of the season. Um, I know that's something you were looking into a few years ago, and I just kind of stumbled upon that myself. Yeah, it's it's a little a little remarkable because it's it's so very tempting to say, oh, you know, oh, it's still early, it's still early. But then, you know, you get haystack problems where it's still early becomes all of a sudden we got to make a move, we got to do something, and and if you're not if you're not watching carefully, you can find yourself really really taken aback. And and like you said, twenty percent of the season. That's you know, if you want to break your season into fifths, we're already one done. Right. And I mean, it does make a little bit of sense just because I know that every time around the preseason, especially the past few years, uh, we've all sort of noticed that if you look at a team's uh, numbers in the final 25 games of the, of the season, somewhere around there, it's, it's a much better predictor than looking at the full season sample size. So it makes sense that kind of that 20 to 25 game range would, would be pretty telling about how good a team really is or, or where they're really deficient. Yeah, you can, I mean, 10 or 12 games can be thrown off by, by something like a really serious injury or that sort of thing. You know, 25 games, even it's not so, not so easy to throw off like that, but uh, yeah, you can, you can almost always tell if, uh, even if you're being misled by some numbers, if you, if you've been paying close attention, you can normally tell, you know, why, mm-hmm. like what sort of thing might happen. Like for instance, there were lots of people who were really worried about Nashville who weren't paying attention to the fact that they had bad food poisoning for a little while, right. which is, you know, which doesn't excuse the fact that they lost games because they played badly. But, uh, you know, but it's not the sort of thing that lasts. That's not like a, you know, not the kind of problem that sabotages you for a season. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, or, I mean, that would be a pretty, pretty bad case of the food poisoning if it sabotages you for the full season. <laughs> 
Yeah, I suppose that that would be where you would start uh, making some investigations. Yes. <laughs> um, well, we'll talk about the predators in a second, but I think that you know it'd be kind of fun exercise if we circle back to that discussion we had in the preseason, as I mentioned, and and discuss sort of. Uh, where we went wrong, where we went right, sort of, and why that is. I, I think it's always a good learning experience to kind of look back at, at your at your projections and your predictions and, and see where you can go from there. So, I mean, I think the obvious place to start is, is the New York Islanders. Um, I had Mike Johnson on the podcast last week, and, and we did a little bit of a deep dive on them. But, I mean, he, I remember your, your model had him as, I think, the third highest Metro team and was very down on the Rangers. And, now we're, you know, it was very understandable based on what we'd seen from these two teams in in the past couple of years. But uh, you look at it now, twenty games in, tw- uh, around twenty games in, and it's 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 changed quite a bit just the way we view these two teams. So the yeah, the Islanders. I uh, preseason I had them uh, on pace for ninety five points. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, the, yeah, just ninety five point three points. And so they're down, they're already down eight points on that projection, which is partially because they've lost a whole pile of games and partially because they've played much, much worse than I expected them to. Mm-hmm. And the, the big surprise to me is, is the shots that they allow. They've, they've never, I mean, that's, that's the big part of the reason why, the, why their stats look, look rough is that they, for whatever reason, can no longer seem to prevent incredible numbers of shots from piling up. Mm-hmm. They're still, still getting their fair share or almost the, um, which again is a little misleading because the Islanders used to play uh, an up-tempo brand of hockey, whereas now the, they're only getting you know NHL average sort of numbers of shots. And then when you when you compound that with the fact that the last three or four games their goaltending has completely deserted them, you know that's that's what gets you the kind of of crushing run of hockey that we're that we're seeing now, which is not just you know you can survive losing a handful of games in a row, but it's very difficult both as a fan base and as a coach and as the, and as an observer to watch that kind of run of hockey and not be disturbed. Well, so I remember that in, in, well, last time we chatted, we discussed a lot about kind of coaching effects and how new coaches would impact teams like the Avalanche and the Senators and, and the Ducks. But uh, it, it's really tough for me to sort of differentiate here between how much of it isn't a talent issue because there definitely are holes on this roster and Garth Snow isn't without blame. But then you look at something like Cal Clutterbuck just basically being tied to John Tavares and, and uh, it, it just seems like that's something that would be pretty avoidable and they they definitely have better options on their roster. So how much of this do you think is is coaching and how much of it do you think is just a lack of talent. I, in this case, I'm I'm tempted to point the finger more at coaching than talent because the roster seems considerably. Uh, I mean, there's turnover in every roster every year, mm-hmm. but but it doesn't seem plausible to me to point at the roster and say, well, you know, it's it's so different. You know, Kyle Pozo was somehow the the glue that kept the Islanders together offensively. I mean, Pozo is underrated. He's a he's an, a legitimate offensive talent, much more than people give him credit for, but. You know, but I don't feel like that somehow that like him and one other two other pieces have have somehow undermined the talent at the Islanders. And especially when you look at the at the personnel decisions, the uh, it starts to seem I don't know if I would say bad, just inexplicable. You know, Clutterbuck getting first line minutes is is a little bit bizarre. And it was telling, for instance, last night the Capuana scrambled his lines completely. He was only playing with eleven forwards, which makes it tougher. But even still, it seemed like like it was pretty much a random three forwards over the boards for every shift. And the one constant in all of that was that Clutterbuck got to play with Tavares uh, completely all the time. They were joined at the hip. Yeah. And, and so at very least I would, you know, I would love to hear some sort of explanation for that. Is it, 
is he playing in some style that Capuano likes and, and hopes that that by rewarding him in this way, other players will continue to also play in that style, in which case it's simply ill-advised. You know, but if he really thinks that, that Clutterbuck playing those kinds of minutes with those kinds of quality of teammates is really giving his team the best chance to win, then I, I think that's just misguided. I mean, coaches are weird like that, though. I mean, you're, you're seeing with the Capitals right now that, you know, they're putting, Barry Trotz is putting Ovechkin and Jay Beagle together because they have the, the right combination of skill and will that he wants all of his players to play with. They're like, you, you know, uh-huh. we, we look at this stuff where it's like, um, okay, I don't know why that's happening, but, you know, th- th- these coaches apparently think that that's just the way to go sometimes. I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of head scratching to me. You have more leeway, of course, when you, when you, you have a greater concentration of talent in Washington, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, you, so you take somebody like Jay Beagle, who maybe doesn't deserve to play those kinds of minutes, the, but then if that's taking somebody like Burkowski or Kuznetsov or a handful of other great players, great forwards that the Capitals have, if they're being shuffled around somewhere else, that's strengthening up your lower lines, then, you know, then you're getting, you're, even if it might not be my choice, it's not nearly as, as bizarre when you're getting something back for what you give up. Mm-hmm. And well, and of course there are some players, you know, who, who seem to be able to carry literally any line mates and, or literally any defense partner, you know, players like Crosby, players like Ovechkin who can play with anyone and make them better. Right. The, that's, you know, and, and I would have considered Tavares in that category, but then, you know, there's gradations even among the greatest of players. Mm-hmm. So, so that lineup, that ability to move up and down through the lineup is something that you can do if you have, if you have fewer holes like the Capitals do compared to the Islanders. And there's plenty of teams who, who aren't able to do that and who have to be very careful to make sure that, you know, that they have two or preferably three really solid lines, even if their fourth is not so great. You know, whereas other teams have been making a, a real show of rolling four lines and uh, and the Rangers that you mentioned earlier are a great example of that. I mean, that's part of why they've been so successful is that they've been able to put together four lines which can all threaten. Yep. Well, okay, so let's move into the Rangers then on kind of more uplifting, positive news. Uh, that Islanders discussion bummed me out a little bit. Um, it's 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 interesting because obviously you know it's our nature to just look at a team like the Rangers and be like, well, I mean they're shooting over twelve percent at five on five. That's obviously not going to continue, and and they're going to come back down to earth a little bit. I mean, all of their all of their kind of underlying metrics are a bit juiced right now, but it's even if they regress and fall back down to earth a bit, I mean they've built such a cushion offensively between themselves and the rest of the league that you know they, they can handle a rough patch here and still come out looking pretty good in the overall season total and it's funny because i remember before the season we lumped them and the canadians together and we were discussing how how reliant they were on their goalies and how we still like them as playoff teams just because how, how good those two guys were but i honestly have to admit I, I didn't really see this offensive explosion coming from them heading into the year no, and you're definitely right. Their shooting percentage is, is higher than you would expect and, and almost certainly can't last. But on the other hand, you know, we say it's going to come back down to earth, but earth is different for different teams. And the Rangers have traditionally been, especially their forward group, have traditionally been, uh, have had career, safe, or not safe percentages, career personal shooting percentages higher than the NHL average. And I don't think there's any reason to think that that's going to be different this year. Mm-hmm. So their natural resting point, you know, intuitively, I feel it's probably a shade lower than what it is now, but it's not like when a regression comes for them, it's not going to be some sort of earth-shaking thing. It's going to be, you know, a few less goals every few games. The, and, and considering that the numbers they're putting up now, I, you know, I don't think it's going to be great cause for concern, especially if you can see it coming. Of course, the big thing with the Rangers, again, with the surprise with the Islanders, it's the same with the Rangers, is that the surprise is the number of shots against. Mm-hmm. The, the trouble last year was that the Rangers were, 
were giving up too many shots, especially too many shots in sequence. The, they would, they would not just give up so many shots, but, but they seemed to be able to defend their own blue line, but then not get back, but they weren't able to attack their own blue line. Mm-hmm. So they were, they couldn't play offense in their own zone in the sense of getting the puck over the line. Right. And so the, so every time that they allowed an entry, they were allowing shot after shot after shot. And there were a handful of players who were especially, especially guilty of that. Dan Girardi being the most obvious one. And he hasn't, he hasn't exactly impressed this year, but he's been better than last year when he was dire. So there's, and there's a handful of other moot changes that they've made on defense, which have so far appeared to work. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely the, the big surprise to me is that they're not leaking dangerous shots that really force them to rely on Lundqvist quite as much as, as I expected, and also not shots in just the same quantity as before. Right. Yeah. No, they're, um, they're a team that's it's, it's, they're rolling right now. It seems like they can't do anything wrong. Um, I, I want to talk to you about the Bruins a little bit because um, I, I don't think your model really loved them heading into the year, and, and I personally thought they they had a chance to be really bad. Just to, I mean... If Zdeno Chara kept kind of on this downward pace he had been on the past few years, like they were, they were in trouble, especially on that blue line. They just didn't really seem to have very many, uh, serviceable options. But I mean, I look now and I think they're first in shot metrics. They, uh, and, and the weird thing to me is they're giving up the fourth fewest shots in the league behind teams like the Blues, Sharks, and Kings, who you'd expect to be sort of these defensively sound, very strong possession teams. So it just, I don't I, like. What have you seen? What are you seeing with the Bruins right now? Because uh, obviously Chara and 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 his partner Brandon Carlo are you know shouldering a heavy heavy workload, but it seems like it's kind of been a little bit of a group effort. Yeah, it definitely has. The and and of course the 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 shots against are is remarkable, but then also they're generating a tremendous number of shots, especially mm-hmm. recently. Yep. Uh, which is which is again very surprising. Um, you can never be too surprised with. You know, with a handful of really excellent players like like uh, Marshawn Bergeron, mm-hmm. but the the at, although the way that their results have come in have not been you know, they haven't won that many games considering the the numbers they've been putting up. So there's been there's been a bit of ill fortune for them there too. Uh, I had them at uh, as a bubble team going into the season that they were they were looking at at 84 points or so, maybe losing or winning on a tiebreaker. But for sure, that part of the reason is that they have what appears to be almost like a top three, the way that they're deploying their their defenders. The so Char is definitely shouldering a heavier load, but for him, right this year he's playing about twenty three minutes total, which is actually less than he used to. Um, Carlo is up at uh, up at around twenty two. Krug is up at around twenty one. So you have three guys who are playing considerably more than than twenty minutes a game, and then their their bottom three, as it were. The McQuaid, Lyles, and, and Miller are playing something like 19, 17, and 16. So even when your number six defender is playing 16 minutes a night, that's the kind of, of depth defense that lets, you, that lets you stay flexible, that lets you not get wedged into corners. Because you, know, you can use your, your sort of heavy horses, as it were, a little more selectively. Right. And it gives you a lot of options. It keeps you healthy. The, and, and so there aren't... You know, it, it sounds like it's splitting hairs a little bit, but there aren't very many teams who can trust their third pair to play those kinds of minutes. And uh, and and Lyles and Miller are not, you know, nothing to write home about, but they're better than most third pairs. So yep. that's, that really, you know, that helps. You know, all those little incremental things, especially in defense, adds up. When you don't have any, you know, you don't have any glaring weaknesses that you can exploit, 
the, where you, you know, you're consistently getting, you just have lost shifts where you, where you can't possibly hope to do anything with the puck. Yeah. Which is what I thought. When you can avoid that problem. Yeah. Right. And I, and I thought they'd have a lot of that where, I mean, we knew that the top of this roster was really good and I think maybe I didn't even give them enough credit just how good they'd be. I mean, this, this Pasternak, Marshawn, Bergeron line is, is arguably the best line in the league right now. Just it, whenever they're on the ice, they're pretty much controlling all the shots, all the scoring chances and all the goals. It, it's crazy. But, uh, yeah, the rest of the team has kind of picked up, picked up the, the pace as well. And that's not something I was expecting. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the Flyers because, you know, th- one thing we sort of you could you could hang your hat on with this team was that they'd have good goaltending and people had been skeptical of Steve Mason for years, even though his numbers uh, had suggested that he was at least a league average, if not, you know, handily above league average guy ever since he came to Philly. But this year they have the league worst five on five save percentage and, and that's that's surprising to me, especially after being second best last year and I think seventh or eighth best the year before. So I don't know, is it just one of those things where um you know, goaltending, man, we just, we just don't know. And it's one of those things that it, it'll, it'll even out eventually, or is there something that's kind of systemically wrong here? I, to me, it looks like, like a flash in the pan. Mm-hmm. The, you know, I know that's not easy for Philly fans to hear where, you know, especially when you're, you're being told by statisticians that your goaltenders are great. And then they come out and they do something like this, right. the, uh, you know, and then of course, you know, which is, it's a shame to pile, to literally pile insult upon injury after all, because Neubert is hurt badly and will be out for quite some time. The, but I, the, I, I think there's no real reason to suspect that anything is seriously wrong with Steve Mason in particular. The, and, and I don't think there was anything seriously wrong with Neubert either. So I think once, once their goaltending regresses, which, you know, and regression is one of those things that doesn't, it doesn't have a time scale. The, you know, you, you expect the talent level that you've come to expect from 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 all players, including from goaltenders, every night. Uh, so it's not like you know, it's not like you're due that somehow because you play badly you'll play better. But you expect them to play at their natural talent level nightly, and and you can be fooled by a handful of coin flips that go against you, and uh, you know, or even more than that. The good thing in Philadelphia is that they've they've also had a fair bit of good fortune also. The, so their record is sort of afloat, as it were, compared to what it might be considered in their goaltending because they've managed to to press when losing very, very well, um, much better than, than the average team. They've managed to find a lot of, of equalizing goals, a lot of comeback goals. And so the, this is part of the rough with the smooth, if you like. It probably doesn't feel like that. They only have four regulation wins. It's not... You know, it's not like you would look at the record and what's going on in Philadelphia so far and think, you know, oh, that's excellent. But you've had considerably less than career goaltending, career typical goaltending from your goaltenders, which means you should expect that to get better. And despite that, you've still managed to salvage a fair few number of points and are still on pace the well to for a tiebreaker in the wildcard spot by my projections at the moment. So, you know, it's not... There's nothing, I mean, as, as optimistic takes go, that's not very optimistic, but it's not the kind of sky is falling, everything is bad, you know, Hextall has to make a deal, Hextall has to change everything. It's it's not that kind of situation at all for me. Yeah, yeah. it's it's amazing how, 
you know, we can preach being rational and, and process over results, but then a few bad uh, goals here or there. And then all of a sudden you kind of just like, it's very easy for fans to just throw that out the window and get all crazy. But I think that ultimately it's going to be fine there, especially um, I'm, a, I'm a big Steve Mason fan. And I think that now that they're just going to basically ride him and, and give him every start, I think that's going to, it's going to bode well for them. Uh, before we get out of the Eastern conference and move on to the West, uh, let's take a few minutes to discuss the, the Ottawa senators who I know are, are very near and dear to your heart. And we, we discussed the coaching change before and, and what Guy Boucher would be able to do and whether they'd be able to shore some things up defensively. And, um, at least just looking at the, at the, at the shot metrics, it looks like they've once again been pretty porous in terms of giving up opportunities in bunches. Um, have you noticed any sort of noticeable changes in the, that the new coaching staff has brought in? And is there more reason for optimism than there was in years past? Uh, a little bit, sort of cautiously optimistic, but mm. not as optimistic as say as I was about the Flyers, where a lot of the negative things are are look reasonably clearly like statistical outliers. The I, it's funny. I I think a lot harder about the Senators than I do about a lot of the other teams, and I'm I come away more confused. There, <laughs> there's there's a lot of very strange things going on, and it appears that that Boucher and his decisions, not all of which I understand at this point. The, some of which look good and some of which look bad. It looks like Boucher's decisions affect what's going on more than I would have expected. And and I can't quite discern for good or for ill yet. So, for instance, if you look at shot measures, you, it's true. You you see that they've been giving up a lot of shots recently, especially. Um, early on, they were they played a much tighter game, which I don't think suited them, although they, they did manage to win several of those games. Uh, recently, in the last handful, five or six games, there's been a big uptick in the in the amount of offense they've been able to generate, and so it's, which I think is is the way they have to play. I think they have the kind of roster that that ought to play an up tempo sort of game. I think they should model themselves on a team like the Stars, where they should play, especially considering the quality of the goaltending they have. Um, and so if they're if they're moving to that, I think I think that will be a big improvement. The other thing that's very unusual is that they're if you look at at all shots at the shot, just took a really broad look at their total shot percentage. Then you look at their total unblocked shot percentage. Then you look at their total expected goals percentage. So with a quality weighting on the kinds of chances that they've been generating and been giving up, you get three totally different stories. Mm-hmm. That if you, if you look only at total shots, then they're being submarined. They're, they're giving up way too many. The, and, you know, and, and big changes have to be made. If you look only at unblocked shots, which normally tail very closely to the to total shots and right. generally predict equally well the you know on a on a broad sense there's no reason why you would pick one over the other unless you have an extremely outlandish shot blocking or or avoiding shot blocking strategy if you look at unblocked shots then you see something that's a little bit below average very close to the average in the last sort of 3 4 5 years uh, you know nothing to give you hope really but nothing to say oh you know something definitely different and then if you look at the quality measures they've been generating you say to yourself well no, actually the team is really really good and they've been you know like maybe 53 54 percent quality good and they've, they've been you know sort of second tier quality in the league in the like five to ten range right. and and they've just been extremely unfortunate with offense and that once the goals start to go in you know then they're going to look like the rangers somehow and the regression is going to come from them the other way so so there's a lot of <laughs> There's kind of something for everybody, and it's a little funny to watch the arguments on Twitter where the people who are down on the team say, well, look, they're clearly terrible. And the people who are, who are perennial optimists say, oh, look, they're clearly wonderful. And, <laughs> it's usually and I, somewhere in between. I, I'm left, I mean, that's the temptation is just to say, well, it must be somewhere in between. But, but I, 
you know, in the, I, I try to just find out what the truth is and then stick to it, whether it's the extreme on one side or the extreme on the other side. And I, I'm afraid I can't, I can't figure it out at this point. Yeah. The, the real trick, of course, will be if it's true that they're, that they're systematically generating very high quality chances, but then not scoring, then, then you will see uh, a healthy uptick in goals for the goals against should stay mostly as they have been. I don't think there's such, I don't think there's such an unusual disparity there. So if you want to watch something in particular, if they're, if they're scoring numbers, if their goal numbers start to go up, then I think you might, you might start to think that maybe, maybe it's really strong, but if they, if they continue to, to play the way they have been and, uh, and still generate very few goals per game, then, then maybe the naysayers are right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you'd expect someone like Mike Hoffman, for example, to be scoring uh, a lot of those goals for them, and, and he only has three right now, and, and you kind of look deeper and wonder what's wrong, and then it just basically looks like it's a it's a shooting percentage thing where he was like a 12, 13% guy for the past two seasons, and then now it's cut in half at 6%, and uh, and I know he's a guy that shoots a lot, like from the perimeter, and he, and he gets away with it because he has such a such a de- lethal shot. But I find it hard to believe that after watching him for the past two seasons, that all of a sudden he's like a well below league average finisher. Like I, I think that it, it's reasonable to expect that that's going to kind of uh, normalize eventually. Yeah, I agree. And and of course, all shooters are streaky. All scorers are streaky. And uh, and Hoffman, like you say, because of the way that he relies on 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 his pure sh- shooting skill, if you like. To, that maybe makes him more streaky because mm-hmm. he's, you know, like if you if you rely on being able to pick corners, even if your ability is still there, that you're taking what to other people would look like low percentage shots much more often, and so that you're going to get a, a statistically you're going to get a streakier effect from that. Yep. So maybe there's one good fortune there for the Senators is that Guy Boucher is, is coaching specifically because he, for historical reasons and just temperamental reasons is giving Mike Hoffman a much, much longer leash than, uh, pardon me, than he got in years past, which is good considering precisely this scenario. Yep. Yeah. Um, let's move on to the West. Uh, I think we're going to spend less time on the West than we just did on the East because I don't, I don't know. It, it, I, obviously, you know, I, I work for sports then and we have a, a big East coast bias, of course. But other than that, I, I just think that the, the Eastern conference is, is weirdly more intriguing than the west to me this year i don't know if you find it that way but i think that it definitely i mean the bottom end just isn't nearly as bad as it is out in the pacific so it makes me just kind of more interested just because you see better more 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 competitive games than we do out west i don't know i don't know what it is well i think there's a lot of teams in the east who are very close to the playoff cutoff right and that the and that and for fan engagement i think that's that's really fun i mean by my count i think that there are uh, 10 teams that are within five points that, that I project now to be within five points of the playoff cutoff at the end of the year in just in the East 10. Yeah. So that's, that's a pile of, of excitement. You're getting a matchup between those teams almost every night. You know, so the, you know, it's only, it's not even, it's not even advent yet. And the, the playoff implications are already becoming very amusing. And I don't think you're seeing that in the West. You know, there's, there's also a little bit of bunching up, but then there's just not as many teams, which means that the, you know, you don't, you don't get quite as much, quite as many races. And of course, the really weak teams of the league the, this year, I mean, I, I only count three really weak teams in the East and four really weak teams in the West, but the, the Western teams have identified themselves very, very plainly <laughs> yes. right away. Yeah. And that, that also kind of saps a little bit of the interest out of it. I mean, if you're in Arizona, Calgary, or Vancouver, which is, which is almost half of the Pacific Division, so your, your season is basically finished. Yeah. It's they both have tremendous holes. You know, all, sorry, all three of those teams have to gain about 
have to gain 10 more points than expected just to be in the playoff conversation. That's really rough. I don't know what, what you can do there to generate a lot of excitement. Yeah. Yeah, you were saying that uh, you look at the you look you look long and hard at the Senators and you don't really know what to make of them. Uh, I can look at those three teams and and make pretty clearly what they are at this point. Exactly. Yes, which uh, is sad and and possibly slightly unkind. But yes, yeah, but a little bit of both. Um, okay, which team are you more worried about the the Predators or the Stars? Ah, uh, tricky. Both of them are are real conundrums. I think I'm probably more worried about the Stars, although I'm not particularly worried about either one. I think the ship has been righted in Nashville already. Uh, uh, I, I don't know what the, the sort of teething struggles were there. Um, possibly adjustment time for, for Subban, who's, who has to be an enormous part of that defense core for them to succeed. The, you know, they, they swapped out their most important piece and obtained a new player who is now their most important piece. You know, that's, that's a big adjustment. Whereas in Dallas, I feel like the problem is is more just injuries. You know, there, I was joking earlier about how, you know, single injuries don't, don't derail an entire season, but then, you know, you look at, at the way those injuries have piled up. They've lost, they've lost six forwards, like weighted by, by man games lost. They've lost something like, something like two and a half seasons, full seasons of players already. It's the, you know, that's, that's very, very tough. So, you know, I don't think Nashville has those sorts of systematic problems. You know, you're worried about coaching problems, about how people aren't gelling, about how systems don't mesh, you know, five, ten games and that fixes up. Whereas, you know, in the stars you've already got two or three people who are done for the year. You know, that's not something that you can that you can easily fix. And Jim Neal is is one of the better GMs in the league, I think, but you can't just pull rabbits out of a hat week after week after week. And and he doesn't have as many assets to deal with as he did in years previously when he did things like give them up for Chris Russell for a playoff run last year. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not. I wouldn't have made that specific trade, although I don't. I don't disagree with the sentiment. I think the stars were in a place where they were, where they should be loading up for for run. Right. And uh, and now they're, you know, it, it constrains them. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's weird seeing them. I think they're 19th in in five on five goals so far this year, and. Uh, it, it just you, we would have obviously predicted them to be top five, if not if not top one. But I think that obviously a lot of that has to do. I mean, losing Yanmark, Eakin, Sharp, Spezza, and Hemsky. I mean, I feel like those uh those would be like five of the best six or seven forwards on a team like the Canucks. So it's 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 crazy. Yeah. It's it's cr- it's crazy that they're losing those guys and still have um you know they're still competitive and they're still we're still seeing sort of flashes of that upside just because guys like Sagan and Ben are are so dynamic that there's going to be an odd night here here or there where they can just generate four or five goals themselves seemingly but they definitely don't have that just kind of like with the rangers where they just roll four lines and there's never any let up i mean now all of a sudden you're seeing uh inferior players playing on their bottom six so that, that that's a bit concerning to me but i think the predators are are interesting um i think that you know heading into the year we would have expected their goaltending would be the their biggest drawback and it's been arguably their most kind of consistent, reliable thing. I think they're ninth in five on five save percentage as a team this year, and and it's it's weird seeing that sort of keep them afloat in the early going. So hopefully, uh, those goals start coming, and they and they start relying a bit less on on, on guys like Rene. I I have to say that that surprised me too, and that was the kind of the way that they started their season. It could have easily sunk them completely if Rene had had the kind of stretch which he can have. So the there's been. I don't know if you would call it good fortune, but uh, but it's rare to see you know all of these all of these luck or I should say variance things you know they generally don't have anything to do with one another. 
So you, you don't often get all of the troubles all at the same time. Although, you know, every now and again you do. And you, you know, for instance, the, to what happened to the Habs last year, you know, price got hurt, which is extremely unfortunate. And then a whole bunch of other things just went south really fast. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you watch them like implode like a tanker where you suck the air out of them. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, re- the reason why, I, I don't know, I just, I don't even know what to discuss with the West at this point, because the obvious stuff would be like, okay, are the Blackhawks this good? And I feel like anyone that just looks, takes five seconds to look at their numbers would say, no, they're probably not this good. I mean, Corey Crawford right now, if, if he keeps playing this way, then he'll have like the best goaltending season ever, I think. So like, I think that eventually that, even though I, I do think the world of him, he'll eventually come back down to earth a bit and, and they will stop winning at this pace. And then you have teams like the Sharks and Blues who have been a bit pedestrian in the standings, but all of their underlying numbers suggest that they've been unlucky and, and just based on where they've been at in years past, they'll they'll turn that around eventually and be atop the standings again. So I don't know, is there like anything we're missing out West in terms of interesting, surprising storylines so far? But I don't know how many people are going to be surprised by Winnipeg this year, but they're going to win a bunch of games. Mm-hmm. They're already winning a bunch of games. And they, they for instance, Patrick Lina, amazingly, has, has somehow not quite reached the same hype as a handful of, of other rookies this year. The, but but he's going to be forcing his way into those sorts of conversations. And, the, the, you know, I did not think I would see a player who reminded me even a little bit of Alex Ovechkin in my entire lifetime. And already Lina is doing that for me. Mm. The, the same the stylistic way he plays, the, the incredible shot. Doesn't, it doesn't hurt, of course, that he's the same handedness as Ovechkin. And so he's shooting from exactly the same spot on the power play. You know, but you see that shot and it's like, you know, when you see your friend in the mirror and then you look up close and you realize it's not your friend, that kind of, that kind of slightly eerie reminiscence. Yep. You know, so he's, and, and then you look at the rest of their, of their forward depth, especially, and you see that, that they have a whole pile of, of, of lower level prospects who are maybe only just a little bit below the top tier of prospects. And then when you have three or four guys like that, you can start to, you can start to develop that four line attack we were talking about. And then of course the, you know, they've just been rejuvenated with Truba coming back in. Who knows how long he'll stay there? And that looks like a trade me contract. But we'll, you know, that there's there's a lot of of strength in that roster, especially now that they that they're not playing Pavlik on a nightly basis. You know, there's there's not that many holes in the roster left. Even if you don't know the names of those guys, I think you'll know a lot of their names pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, you know, some of the guys like Line, of course, and, and Wheeler, who people keep saying is underrated, but I feel like eventually he'll either be properly rated or overrated just because, every, <laughs> you know, it's like the whole like Louis Erickson thing, for example. It's like everyone just keeps saying this guy's underrated, underrated. Uh, if we all think he's better than most people think he is, then maybe just most people think that he's really good. Yeah. Um, but, you know, then like guys like Nikolai Ehlers, for example, and, and they've drafted high up in the draft and went for uh, high upside, high skill guys. But I think the surprising thing to me is is the emergence of Mark Shifley? Um, you know, he was he was seventh overall pick, and and he had good major junior numbers. So it's not necessarily one of those things like where did this guy come from. But I just early in his career, I just didn't really think that he had this sort of upside. But I mean, basically, since like halfway point of last year, he's he's well over a point a game, and and he just looks like a a, a dominant two way force out there. So I think that his emergence as well into sort of an upper echelon guy down the middle is huge for them because that is one position where they desperately needed someone. I agree. And there's no, there's no question that Shifley, that Shifley fits the bill, you know, and he's been within the fan base. And like, he's been questioned endlessly. Mm-hmm. The, and, and, you know, there's no, 
there's a certain style of player that somehow just inspires confidence that makes him say, oh, you know, we'll be fine. The, and and Shifu hasn't played like that, at least not in years past, until this year. But you know, but then you look at the at the way he produced last year, even and even the year before that. If you look at at his on ice results, especially if you dig a little bit deeper than just how many he personally put in the net, it's not you know, it's sort of don't call it a comeback territory. He's always been steady, and and of course the other thing too is that he was played very defensively. He was a kind of you know, if I was if I was given votes, I would have put him maybe second or third in my Selkie ballot last year. I thought he had a tremendous year defensively, but but he wasn't even in the Selkie conversation. The which is which is unusual, and of course, you know, it's a little bit difficult for me when people say, "Oh, you know, you know, when is Shifley going to start producing?" and then also be shouted down when you suggest that actually maybe his defensive numbers are excellent because he was being deployed in an extremely defensive way. Right. Yeah. So the. You know, and you see the same thing. There's a handful of players who do this. You know, they have particular skill sets that endear themselves to coaches, and so they start getting more and more defensive deployment after being previously hyped as offensive talents. You know, Zabanajad in New York, for instance, is is doing incredible work defensively for them this year. But he was never treated as as like a shutdown center. He was never treated as a two way guy. He was, you know, he was brought into the league with this sort of fanfare about flash and dash. However, truthfully, that however reasonably. So there's, you know, those sorts of swings can happen where coaches can change their mind about how they're going to deploy a player. And that can be quite a bit faster than to change people's minds. So they they can change their own minds quite a bit faster than fan bases will change their minds, for instance. Yep. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, Micah, um, let people know where they can follow you, where they can look for your snazzy new charts and uh, how they can help support your work if they feel so inclined. So you can find me compulsively on Twitter all day, every day, which is which is not so strange. It's my job now. Mm. The, and so the handle is at ineffective math. It's an old joke about how I couldn't get a job as a mathematician. The all one word. And uh, and so all of the the work I do for the public I put on my website, which is hockeyviz.com, H-O-C-K-E-Y-V-I-Z.com. The and and to my great pleasure, the my primary source of income is subscribers who get early access to charts and early access to predictions. And, uh, and so you can sign up at my Patreon campaign, which is patreon.com slash hockeyviz. And there's links all over my Twitter and all over my website for you uh, if you want to catch it out later. So there's all sorts of new, you know, crazily colored visuals every day for those who like such things to check out. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I can't uh, encourage people to do so, to follow and, and help out enough. Um, and we'll make sure to get you back on the PDO cast. I think a good plan is somewhere around the midpoint of the season, maybe around the All-Star break, and, and we'll... We'll have to do a second look at uh, where, maybe where we went wrong, where we went right during this discussion. So that'll be uh, something very good. To. Cool. Uh, thanks well, again. Thank you Mike. very much. We'll, it's a pleasure we'll, every time. We'll chat soon. Take care. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com/slash Hockey PDO Cast. Mm-hmm.